this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. All right, everybody. So uh, this is our first pod back after the uh, About Face convention uh, that I attended um, a couple of weeks back uh, in the beginning part of August. We were uh, just south of Seattle at a, uh, a really cool little retreat with some some great people who are very, very, very serious veterans, um, activists from a number of political persuasions, and uh, and we'll talk about that later. But as always, we've got to fill you in on the very very demoralizing headlines. Um, me and Henry have said a million times that there's there's more for us to talk about than we could possibly cover in any given podcast episode. So we've actually gone down in some ways and done less headlines and tried to go a little more thorough on each of those. This week, I think we have to talk about Yemen. We've done an entire show on Yemen. We've done two or three different segments on Yemen. But for once... Yemen broke into the news just a little a week back, and that is when a Saudi airstrike, which we must always qualify with a U.S.-supported Saudi airstrike, uh, killed at least 40 and maybe 51 Yemeni children on a school bus on the way to a field trip. And this is really just a tiny speck of the catastrophe that's happening every single day in Yemen. But what stands out to me is this was children on a school trip. This uh, stands out as something particularly horrific that can hopefully spark a conversation. The conversation that I want to have is why in the world is the United States Air Force, why in the world is the United States intelligence community supporting the Saudi tyrants, the tyrannical Saudi Islamists who behead women in their own country and who are terror bombing the Yemeni people into submission? Why would we continue to support that? And why isn't there the political courage in Congress to stand up and vote against funding this war. Because as long as we continue to fund it, we are complicit. And complicity is guilt. We tried. Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Rand Paul, totally on the other side, Republican from Kentucky. They, they tried to throw together a bipartisan bill a few months back to cut off congressional funding to the Saudi war of aggression in Yemen. And what happened? We got about 35 votes. Couldn't even, couldn't even muster a majority, let alone the necessary supermajority in the Senate. So what does that tell us? It tells us we live in a country of political cowards. It tells us that our elected representatives will not do what is ethically and strategically, right, ethically and strategically correct, which is to pull all U.S. support from this Saudi war of terror, war of terror in Yemen. We're so big on saying, oh, we're fighting the war on terror. That was 17 years ago we started talking about that. I don't know. We've renamed it a few times, but people still talk about the war on terror. What happens when you're making war on people in a way that is terror-filled? What happens then? And, uh, and that, that's a question we have to be willing to ask, and, and too, uh, to, too often we're not willing to have that question. So, you know, Henry, I don't know what you thought of this story. Um, it brought so much to my head. Um, I don't think I could possibly get it all out in one segment. Um, I listened to uh, Scott Horton's show. I think it was on this from the sixth, where he he spoke with Iona Craig, 
um, about recent reporting that she's done. And it, it wasn't so much that the, the statistics she added, which were horrifying or, you know, and, and it was more about her demeanor. This, this is a, this is a journalist who's traveled to Yemen many, many times and seen the horrors there. And she was beside herself about what was currently happening, that it has gotten substantially worse. The, with the bombing of that uh, coral, uh, coral, uh, coral treatment center, um, and and then this, and you know, it it it, uh, you know, it, it's this, it's it. What justification can anyone possibly give for that being any kind of a tactical target, except for we hate these people and we're okay with as many of them dying as we like? Right. Right. Well, and we spoke to her as well, of course, and so we uh, we're very familiar with the passion that she brings to the table. Oh yeah, she's awesome. Um, we are very, very familiar with uh, with her passion on this subject, and and for her to be that upset to me is uh, is indicative of something, is it not? Um, the fact that she is is that horrified tells you that this must have been a low blow. This must have been a particularly bad strike. And I'll tell you, one of the ways that I knew that something was afoot here is that you actually saw the faces of the Yemeni children on TV for maybe the first time. Um, not as much as I would have liked, of course, but um, for once, there were actually Yemeni children's faces on TV because that's not how we normally do it, is it? We, uh, we, we can, we're always concerning ourselves with you know, uh, Belgian children, for example, who die in a terrorist attack, right? But they look like us, they're Caucasian, okay? So, so they matter, right? Um, or maybe we'll, we'll see uh, French children who are killed in one of the latest terror attacks in like Nice, France. And, and, and we have empathy, empathy for them, and we should, we should have empathy for them. But there's an empathy gap normally. I was happy to see that in this individual case, uh, the Yemeni children did get a hearing uh, on television, uh, at least to some extent. And and we're starting to talk about it. But here's the bad part. I don't think that the political courage exists in our current Congress to do anything serious about this. I don't think there's any chance, really, that uh, that that anyone in Congress is going to shut this war down. The political courage just isn't there. I, I mean, unless I'm missing something, man, I, I just don't see it. What do you think? No, I, I, I don't think it's there either. The language that was inserted into the new National Defense Authorization Act was very weak on reporting as far as what's happening there in Yemen. And, and again, even if it was robust, even if it was written well, who's, again, who's going to fuel it? What political courage is going to fuel the drive to go and, and actually question this, even though there's plenty of reason to do that? Not the least of which is that, uh, I think it was Zero Hedge, that reported that MSNBC reported how many times on Stormy Daniels and yeah. zero times on, on what's happening in Yemen. You know, and, and, and I get that you know, news these days is so much about what's happening at the moment and how much can, how much can we churn the butter in this fucking moment to, to get the most out of it. But that doesn't actually tell people stories. That's just about what's flashy. And so it, 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 we miss so much, not even just defense news, but all other kinds of news because of that mentality. Because for some reason, the, the, the Rachel Maddows have decided that Russiagate and all of its elements are more important than actual people dying. And, and I, 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 I can't find that acceptable in the fucking least. 
it's it's really interesting that you brought up Rachel Maddow because I'm working on a piece this week that'll appear in Anti-War um, probably next Tuesday. I'm back to uh, weekly columns on Anti-War, by the way, listeners. Uh, my, my first uh, Tuesday article came out this week, uh, which is a whole other subject that I will talk about uh, when I am out of the Army. But uh, hint, hint, it involves an investigation of yours truly and my obviously unpatriotic writing. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. I'm going to keep my mouth shut um, until I get my retirement and until uh, my medical comes through, I should say. And, uh, and then we're going to have a lot to talk about. Sounds good. But, Sounds uh, good. you know, th- you're right. Stormy Daniels uh, gets mentioned over and over and over. Any sort of sordid sexual, um, you know, topic tends to do really, really well in the news, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and anything anti-Trump does particularly well. And I, I'm the last person who's, you know, um, who's some sort of big fan of the president. I mean, I don't think anyone would ever accuse me of that by any means. But at the same time, I'm willing to say, you know, look, not everything that this president does deserves critique. And some of the things this president does that do deserve critique don't deserve as much critique as other things like the criminal war in Yemen. Uh, so I think that's where where I'm at sort of on these uh, on these issues. And it's it's a uh, it's very frustrating, to say the least. Uh, what I will say is um, it has been proven that congressmen and senators respond to pressure of sorts. They respond to uh, political pressure and monetary pressure. So if you are of means and capable, lobby your congressman. Okay, If you think what's happening in Yemen is a crime like we do, then it's time to speak up and uh, kind of put your money and your feet, more importantly, where your mouth is and uh, actually be an activist rather than, uh, you know, rather than just talking about issues on the uh, on the web, which, you know, anybody can do. Anybody can retweet something. Okay, and we're guilty of it. Henry and I do that. Okay, but uh, there needs to be more to it. There needs to be more to it. And uh, so anyway, I think we'll leave Yemen there. But uh, I wish I could tell you we weren't going to come back to Yemen, uh, except that I'm, I'm just about positive that we will, because this story isn't going anywhere. It's got legs and it's not going anywhere. Absolutely. No, it, it, it's it's something we're going to have to talk about for a long time. And that's that's really horrifying. So. So I, I want to talk about a, uh, a writer that I follow pretty regularly. His name is um, Dan Lamoth. Uh, of the Washington Post, and he writes on a very, very wide assortment of defense news, um, stuff starting from the new Pentagon restrictions on FIBIT-type devices to in order to protect installation security to the returned remains of U.S. troops repatriated from North Korea. Now, he regularly travels with um, SecDef Mattis on some of his trips to meet with foreign leaders and visit U.S. troops. And as far as I can tell, in, in the nature of his writing, is that he works really hard to be a honest broker of defense news. He's equally critical of everybody, as far as I can tell. And that, that's what makes the next part of the story so infuriating. Politico reported recently that there had been a string of retaliation moves by Pentagon media staff against defense reporters from various outlets. Even Defense One, which is literally sponsored by Lockheed Martin, weren't invited to a routine press conference because the reporting on a roundtable discussing Trump's new Space Force bullshit came out before the Pentagon was ready for it. Now, this is in addition to an investigation against Trump, uh, Trump appointee and Pentagon press chief Dana White, who's been accused of using her own staff 
for personal errands and retaliating against them when they complain. But back to Dan's story. Dan didn't get missed for an invite to a briefing or get excluded from an off-the-record meeting with Mattis, as has happened to others. His cost was much worse. Dan, um, with his place at the Washington Post, had secured an invitation to embed with U.S. Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan, which it's not an easy thing to get approved for or even to plan it once it's approved. Reporters embed in lots of U.S. military units around the world. Um, I've even given a lift to a few during my time in Iraq. But doing this kind of stuff with special ops forces is an entirely different ballgame. Their missions are tougher and more dangerous. They go over tougher terrain. They're usually going against the worst guys. So it's a very big honor and a big endeavor to, to do something like this. And I'm guessing that Dan probably spent months preparing for the assignment. The retaliation against Dan was to have his embed assignment nixed at the last minute. He was already in country, in Afghanistan, when he was told about losing the assignment. He ended up having to come back to the States, and then he returned to Afghanistan a bit later to do an embed with the newly minted First Security Assistance Brigade, which is one of those new quasi-special forces advise and assist brigades. They're not special forces, but they, they do some of the missions that special forces usually do. Now, the mainstream media already downplays a great portion of major military news of all subjects. We shared, uh, we, Danny and I recently talked about the photo of an almost empty Pentagon press room for a briefing on, let's guess, Afghanistan. Clearly, very few media outlets are willing to do critical stories of the military. But this right here, this is an entirely different level. We need reporters embedded in units of all types to tell the stories of ordinary troops and their missions. If a months-long planned embed can get nixed at the last minute, what else can be shoved off into the shadows? And, and, and just to satiate our curiosity, what was, what was Dan's sin against the Trump administration and their defense appointees? He wrote a fairly stereotypical defense article where he pointed out that increasing Afghan special forces numbers could leave their ordinary combat units undermanned. That's it. That's all he did. And while that decision does follow the Trump pattern of Goebbels-esque media control, this is the first time I've seen the that the Pentagon was willing to toss out its own work in support of defense reporters. Fuck, when, and, and, and going back to me mentioning Defense One at the beginning, when Defense One gets their seat at the table shaken, an outlet that specifically totes the military-industrial complex line is there any hope for people like Dan and ordinary reporters at the New York Times or the Washington Post? What do you uh, What do you think about that, Danny? Well, I'm really glad. I mean, this this is a great segue into my next talk. But, but before we get there, I've written for Defense One. I think I've put two or three articles in Defense One. Um, normally, I can only get into Defense One if it comes through Defense Priorities, which is a think tank that I'm also affiliated with, libertarian think tank primarily. Defense One is pretty mainstream, like you said. You know, what hope do the New York Times and the Washington Post reporters have if, you know, Defense One, which specifically covers the Pentagon and is, you know, generally on message uh, with the Pentagon, then, then what chance does the Washington Post and the New York Times have? But I'll take it further and say, what chance does something like The Intercept have? What chance does an alternative media platform that tries to take a different view, what chance do they have of ever getting in the room or ever getting on embed? I mean, almost none. And so the war on the media is not just a war on the war on 
to war on all types of media and uh, when we should be expanding the media space, you know, in responsible ways, but when we should be expanding the media space in this age of the Internet, we're actually contracting it. Um, and it becomes like 1984. You know, you, you can only report on things if you took the government line exactly, because if Defense One is getting kicked off their embeds, then I don't know who's not going to get kicked off. Because, uh, yeah, there's some critical material on Defense One, but they focus on the military. They usually argue around the edges. They'll say military strategy in Afghanistan is flawed for X, Y, and Z reasons. They won't say the war in Afghanistan represents militarism and is, and is a terrible crime, right? They're not going to say that. Now, we should let reporters in the room who do say that, okay? Maybe we think it, maybe we don't. But the point is, I want that whole the whole space available for the breadth of the conversation, but... Defense One is usually kind of on the uh, on the mainstream side, so you bring up a really great point, which leads us to my first outlet that I really started writing for. I, I placed a piece in the Kansas City Star like years ago, and I placed a piece on a uh, sort of left wing site called Who What Why, but I really struggled to get my first articles out. But uh, a guy named Tom Engelhart, um, New Yorker, uh, lifelong New Yorker, been in the editing business for gee, I don't want to say too low of an hour, at least 40 years, okay, Pantheon books, The Nation, this guy is all that, written about five books. Well, Tom Engelhart, some years back when he retired from his day job as an editor, started a site called TomDispatch.com, and Tom gave me a shot when nobody would, and really my writing exploded from there. Like, I'm not all that yet, but I never write anything that doesn't publish anymore, and I really do have Tom to thank. The thing that's most interesting about Tom Dispatch and Tom Engelhart's editing in general is that he only accepts long-form analytical pieces. You will not publish on TomDispatch.com unless you follow two criteria. You write at least 2,000 words, give or take, and you let Tom personally edit the piece for content. Okay, Tom edits everything himself. He doesn't have editors. He edits himself. He has some line editors and, I mean, some copy editors who go through the commas and the semicolons. But Tom does all the content editing himself, and he's a tough, tough editor. Tom does not let anything to his pieces that is not cited specifically with a link to a, uh, a creditable source, and Tom doesn't allow any shenanigans on his site. Sure, you can use flippant language. Sure, he wants you to come as a hard-hitting uh, writer. But Tom is based on facts, and Tom wants analytical pieces. And in a media space that has been drilled down to 140 or 280 characters with emojis, Tom represents the last sort of – the last charge or, or the last stand of the old type of journalism, long-form, 2,000, 2,500-word pieces. I've read probably 500 pieces on Tom Dispatch. Since I became a fan about seven years ago, I imagine you've probably read dozens at least, right, Henry? Oh, yeah, I've read a ton of them. And never once has there been a hateful or racist word published. And I'm not surprised because Tom is such a tough editor, he would never allow that. But just the other day, for the first time in my military career, I've read Tom Dispatch uh, before uh, on government computers, on personal computers for years. Okay, uh, I tried to go to TomDispatch.com, and it was blocked by the Department of Defense censors. And... They actually give an, a reason. They give, they give a justification when a website is blocked. And the reason for Tom Dispatch being blocked by the Department of Defense right now is, quote, hate and racism. Well, I challenge anyone to find hate or racism in a Tom Dispatch piece. I've never seen it. Now, what Tom Dispatch is, is generally left-leaning, if we're fair. 
If we're fair, we have to admit that. It's generally uh, anti-war. It's generally critical about the wars, and it's generally probably left-leaning, although there's a variety of writers, and Tom would probably hate it for me to say it's left-leaning. But if we were going to be fair to the military, probably it is left-leaning. But it is uh, far from hateful. It is incredibly well-cited. I mean, it's, it's almost annoying how well you have to cite and how detailed your, your facts have to be in order to get on Tom Dispatch because he's a tough editor. Um, but the Department of Defense says you can't go to TomDispatch.com. You also can't go to The Intercept. I found out because it got curious. I started getting curious. I said, well, if Tom isn't allowed, then who else isn't allowed? I found out that the Intercept isn't either. So then I thought, well, I better go check on the right-wing sites. In fact, I'll choose the kookiest right-wing sites, the most conspiracy theorist alt-right sites I can think of, because certainly, of course, they must be blocked too. If a mainstream, long-form, analytical, slightly left-wing site like TomDispatch.com is blocked, then most certainly Breitbart must be wrong. You can get the Breitbart on a Department of Defense computer. Well, Breitbart's bad. They've had some pretty rough headlines over the years. Racist, anti-Semitic, jeez, uh, misogynistic. I mean, Breitbart, I could just Google Breitbart, 25 craziest headlines. They'll blow your mind. But okay. So Breitbart's allowed, but certainly Infowars, right? Alex Jones, there's no way that this kook who says that the, uh, the shooting in Connecticut didn't actually happen at that school and that the, the, the bleeding children were actually actors. And certainly the guy who has, has laid one conspiracy theory after another onto the table and who's actually been banned by Facebook and Twitter now. Certainly Infowars with Alex Jones must be blocked on the Department of Defense website. But I was wrong again. You may visit Breitbart and you may visit Infowars, but you may not visit The Intercept or TomDispatch.com, which leads me to only one conclusion. I haven't spoken to the Robert Fence about this. I haven't spoken to the people who make these decisions. I don't even know who makes decisions, but the only logical conclusion one can draw from the information I just laid out for you is this. The Department of Defense appears okay with any material of almost any, almost any uh, capacity as long as it's on the right. As long as it's on the political right. But if something is even slightly critical, but analytic and well-cited on the left, maybe it's going to get blocked. Now, for an institution that prides itself on being apolitical, for an institution that prides itself on being center of the road when it comes to politics and nonpartisan, this is shameful. This is shameful. And I'm going to dig deeper. There's probably an article on this coming. Uh, I don't know if I'll wait till I'm out of the Army. Uh, I might. I'm trying to keep my head down and... Uh, Certainly not ruffle too many more feathers than I've already ruffled, which is a lot. Um, but stay tuned on this topic because we're coming back to it. Um, to tell you the truth, a quick personal anecdote. When I told Tom personally about his website being blocked, he was horrified. He wasn't surprised, though. And that's interesting. He was horrified because he knows his site is far from racist and far from hateful. So that's what horrified him. But he wasn't surprised. And then he said to me, he said, Danny, this is the U.S. military we're talking about. I mean, give me a break. Don't be surprised. You know, he was almost shocked that I feigned surprise, but it wasn't feigned. It was real. I, I just thought if anybody would be allowed in the discourse on war and militarism and foreign policy it would be Tom because his site is really such a gem and such, I, I'd say, a national treasure. But uh, that's the last thing I want to say about that for now. But stay tuned in, uh, in my writing and also in uh, me and Henry's future broadcast because we are going to come back to this issue of censorship within the DOD. It's an odd category to, to, to put on Tom Dispatch, just, just period. I've seen lots of uh, YouTube channels and videos 
uh, get taken down, and they'll they'll label them as like political extremism, which it, it is a good bit wider than than just hate and racism. So somewhere somebody's deciding these these categories to put them in, and deciding you know because even even if they think it's a lie, even if they think it's full of crap, which stuff from Breitbart is or, or can be. Um, they still want people to see that stuff, but the stuff that they think is full of crap, but possibly true, critical of the military, critical of all these other things, yeah, that has to get labeled under hate and racism. And and at a certain point, we're going to have to have, uh, you know, who, who gets invited to the table in those discussions? You know, granted, this is, I mean, I'd, again, like you said, we don't even know who makes these category decisions, so... Yeah, I don't pretend to know, and I'm going to look into it because I think I, I owe it to the listeners. Like, a, as a quasi journalist or whatever the heck I am, commentator, I do owe you guys a better answer on who makes these decisions, what level they're made at, and what criteria go into it. But um, just as a surface look, and I, you know, a, a quick search of a few crazy sites on the right, it's, it really does appear shocking, and I think it needs to be out in the open. I need to think this is a discussion that we need to have. Um, certainly, the Department of Defense has the, I guess, the right to block certain sites i mean it's very reasonable not to have soldiers looking at pornography or white supremacist uh websites uh for example while they're on duty but we are encouraged to read credible news sources we are encouraged to read critical articles at least on the at least theoretically i've been told that by senior officers so um our government network computers do need to be exposed to a variety of opinions and a variety of analysis and it just appears that that's not true uh at least under the under the current um, administration, it appears that it's not true, um, Breitbart and InfoWars, which have one thing in common, and that is they're generally pretty pro-Donald Trump, right? I mean, that's that's what they, they, there's a lot of other things we could say about both those sites, okay? There are a lot of things, but one thing they definitely both are is generally pro-Donald Trump, at least during the uh, election campaign. And so is it any surprise that they are of course uh, not blocked and and, 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 and but the 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 very fact of not blocking the site is basically saying they're okay. Okay, I mean, that's the tacit uh, sort of lesson that you can take from it, and it's really disturbing. But on a brighter note, I just want to spend a few minutes, I'm not going to rant on and on about this, talking about About Face. Um, about Face, uh, you've heard us mention it before on the show. Uh, Henry and I are both members. Um, it used to be called Iraq Veterans Against the War, IVAW. It was formed, actually, in, really, I think, early 2004, um, by a couple of young um, male and female enlisted and officer uh, Iraq war combat vets, most of whom were in the invasion, most of whom were in the 2003 invasion, who came home. Many of them got out of the military. Some were in the National Guard, some were in the Reserve, some were active duty, some were Marines, some were Army, Navy. I mean, there's a really good cross-section. But this group of patriotic Americans who had served their country in a time of war said something is wrong. Something doesn't smell right about this Iraq war that I've been a part of. And so they started an organization, and they said IVAW. And the reason they came up with IVAW is because they were looking at the legacy of military dissent, and they thought about the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, the VAW, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, became a potent political force, marching on Washington and, and just you know all, all kinds of political activity. So they form IVAW. And it's a relatively small organization, although it has grown over the years. And uh, some years back, I believe two, two conventions ago, IVAW decided to widen their brand. They said, you know, we have veterans now, not just from the Iraq War, but also from the Afghan War, which has also gone on for 17 years, which has also gone on for far too long. 
in the opinion of the organization, in the opinion of the board. And we also have veterans from Yemen and Pakistan and Libya. I mean, the, the war on terror, which has often become a war of terror, the war on terror has spread far and wide, far and wide. So they wanted to open it up. So About Face uh, is now called About Face, colon, Veterans Against the War. And they had their convention from uh, the 2nd to the 6th uh, of August, uh, just south of Seattle, okay, uh, in a national forest that belonged to the University of Washington, uh, just really at, at the base of Mount Rainier. It was incredibly beautiful, and it looked like a summer camp. Um, uh, I went out there uh, for the convention uh, in an unofficial capacity, not on behalf of the Department of Defense, not on behalf of the Department of the Army. Let me be clear about that. Uh, in an unofficial capacity, I'm not a member of the board. I wasn't uh, in a speaking role. I wasn't in a leadership role. I'm not going to do that, of course, while I'm in uniform. But I, I was there as an observer. I was there as a learner. Um, and what I found is that, that this is an organization worth looking into for all the veteran listeners out there. And I know a lot of our listeners are veterans or the family members of veterans. And the anti-war movement has not had the horsepower in the post-2001 era as it had during the Vietnam era. There's a lot of reasons for that. The main one is probably the lack of a, of a draft, okay, a lack of conscription. Because the vast majority of Americans don't have any skin in the game. The vast majority of Americans don't care about these wars because they don't have to serve in them if they do not choose to. See, we're all volunteers, so it's easy to not feel so bad for us and say, well, he volunteered. It was his choice to go. He has no right to complain about the war. Now, I disagree with that on an intellectual level. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible slippery slope argument. Uh, it, it's ad hominem. It just it doesn't make sense on any level. But this is something we're told. And the vast majority of American college students, American high school graduates uh, uh, don't care about the war because they are too busy watching the Kardashians and looking at their phones and because they do not have to serve. Okay? But there's also apathy in general. I would argue that there's a cultural apathy that has come with this internet generation uh, called the millennial generation. I guess I'm just on the cusp of being a millennial. I'm not, I'm not anti-millennial, but I think there's something to the political apathy of many people in this generation. And uh, for the most part, veterans have been quiet too. Uh, and that's disturbing because I think there are a lot of really astute veterans out there who have their doubts, who have their doubts about their tour or their tours, about what they did, about what they were asked to do, about what they were capable of doing, about whether the mission they were given was impossible. And I would encourage those veterans. I'm not going to say go out and join about face. I'm not going to and I'm certainly not going to use my rank or status in the military to say that. But it's something worth looking into. Uh, I found these to be very interesting people. I was proud to stand among them, uh, proud to do it in the future. Um, they are planning future activities. They were going to uh, protest the uh, Trump military parade on November 10th, but uh, as we know, that has been um, delayed, I think, until further notice, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we can talk about that in another episode. But at the convention, what we did mostly was we didn't stand around and sing songs and chant all day. It wasn't like a, a commune of sorts where we all sat around and held hands. We educated ourselves. There were speakers on topics that ranged from militarism to patriarchy to racism. We talked about white supremacy. We talked about organizational tools. We talked about masculinity. We talked about trans rights. We talked about poverty. We talked about imperialism, and we talked about capitalism. This is an intersectional 21st century movement, okay? This is not your dad's anti-war movement. This is not your grandfather's anti-war movement. This is a 21st century diverse movement. Uh, male, female, cisgender, and otherwise organization that cares about intersectional issues that range, that range from patriarchy to racism. Because what they realize is the seeds 
the seeds of militarism that allow for the longest wars in our history go much deeper than just the military or just veterans issues or just foreign policy. It's all tied into the broader culture of white supremacy and of male chauvinism and of late stage exploitative capitalism. Now, I don't mean to give the impression that these guys are all wild lefties. Not everyone agrees on every issue. What they have in common is they are all veterans. They are almost all combat veterans. They range from the Air Force to the Army. They range from male to female. They range from, you know, PFCs and conscientious objectors all the way up to captains, majors, and colonels. Um, the convention was a was an absolute delight. Uh, I'll be going in the future. I'll be likely more active in the organization when I am uh, capable of doing so and when I'm no longer on active duty. And uh, I just wanted our listeners to hear about it. About face, veterans against the war, not your grandfather's anti-war movement. Something new, something fresh. Check out their website. Um, they have a donations area. They have an information area. They have a leadership area. Uh, they're active across the country with chapters from the West Coast to the East Coast, North to South, Canada to the border with Mexico. So, uh, yeah, check, check them out. Um, there's so much great information out there, and, and it was really a pleasure to be at the convention just uh, two weeks ago. Sounds awesome, brother. I, uh, yeah, I was suck, sucked that I couldn't go, but I'm really glad that you got the chance to go and speak to those guys and network with, with them. And um, speaking of them, I don't know, we won't need to get into this in any detail, but... Uh, did you happen to speak to uh, to Brittany about her uh, her investigation situation? Yeah, so we're talking about Brittany DeBarros, who uh, is a, an Army Reserve captain. Um, she was previously on active duty. I believe she's finishing out her reserve years um, with, I think, the intent to uh, leave the military once her time is up or potentially before. Um, she has uh, caused some controversy of late and been in the news media um, because she uh, planned before her 14-day drill duty, um, which I believe was going to happen out in maybe Fort Lewis, but regardless, uh, before her 14-day uh, active activation drill duty that she has to do every year, she planned 14 tweets to go out once a day, which they did. And every one of these tweets um, just gave a fact about the war on terror, about the military-industrial complex, about militarism more generally. And each of these facts, uh, according to Brittany, and it seems to be the case, uh, were actually pulled from DOD websites or from DOD cited materials. So this is not made-up stuff. This is actually the information of the military, of the Pentagon, being used uh, just to make a certain point. Um, the fact that she did so publicly, the fact that she did so while uh, activated, even though she did not do it while she was on duty, she focused on her duties, and she had pre-planned all this ahead of time. Uh, on her free time, uh, she has become the center of some controversy and of an investigation. I can't say much about that investigation for two reasons. Um, number one, Brittany's privacy is paramount. And number two, it's ongoing. Yeah. Um, what I know is that uh, this very thoughtful, intelligent woman and military officer in Iraq war or Afghan war, I believe, veteran, uh, she's, she's going through tough times. Okay? When the military wants to investigate you, when... Uh, when you cause a controversy or when you make someone in your chain of command look bad for, or think they look bad, it can get pretty ugly. And um, I wish her the best of luck. We're going to talk to her on the pod in a coming week. Um, I did get to talk to her about her investigation. Um, our conversations were generally private, um, and I wish her the best. We wish her the best. And uh, I think we have not heard the last of the Brittany DeBarro story, whether it's about these tweets or about 
a really, really great burgeoning career that she has in whatever she chooses to do, and, and certainly in activism. She's very involved in the Poor People's Campaign, which is an outgrowth of Martin Luther King's last um, or uh, final uh, event that he had planned before his death. And, uh, you know, she's, she's an activist and a veteran and a woman. And we really should uh, stand in solidarity with her because I think she's going through some tough times right now. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm glad that you got to meet up with her and, and, and chat with her a little bit. And um, I hope that it all just levels out. I hope that it, it just, you know, I, I, it, it seems so fucking ridiculous to, to, to do something like that. You know, somebody's auto tweets during their annual training. I, 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 I can't get my head around that at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think her, her big sort of hashtag is resist militarism. And uh, I, I guess that's not okay. I, I, I suppose, I don't know. We'll wait to see what the investigation says. I don't want to speculate what the Department of Defense is going to do. Uh, someone's upset um, with her expressing these opinions uh, over social media. Um, I will tell you that I found her tweets powerful. Okay, um, and I and I think that's worth saying. And so I encourage you to to Google Brittany. Um, there are some GoFundMe sites out there. There's uh, some other ways to sort of reach out through the organization of About Face uh, to help her out. Uh, I believe that she is um, uh, getting counsel from a, a, a civilian attorney, or at least is potentially planning that. So depending on how far the investigation goes and what uh, what actions they take, uh, this is someone who might need a might need support. So of course, I'm not saying that in any official capacity, but uh, but this is a great uh, woman that I had the pleasure to meet and wish her the best. Awesome. Awesome. I hope, I hope that it, it gets better and turn that, turn that bullshit around. So we got to, uh, before we get out of here today, guys, we got a few announcements. We want to make sure stuff, make sure you guys are aware of, um, Danny, what part are you on in your truth digger series? I just finished, um, part 15, which was on the Mexican American war. Probably, one of the more nefarious wars in American history. Um, it really covers everything from the Alamo and the Texas War of Independence up to the uh, fallacious um, uh, depiction of the war as having begun with Mexican aggression when actually it happened on what is largely regarded as Mexican soil, and it takes us all the way through the end of the war. We talk about military dissenters, and uh, it was, I really enjoyed this piece. I, I, I think it caused some controversy. That's, that's my goal. I'm trying to reframe American history and encourage people to look at it through a different lens um next week next saturday uh not this coming saturday but uh two weeks every uh two weeks i put the articles out i'll be doing the road to the civil war so i'll sort of be discussing the 1850s and and how america finds itself in a civil war and after that i'm going to cover the civil war itself so i mean it's moving along uh most likely this truth dig series on american history of mine called american history for truth diggers will probably end up being about 30 to 35 segments uh, at which point it'll be rolled up into an edited collection and published as a book uh, through truth dig and possibly the nation institute uh, more specifically uh, so you know stay tuned truthdig.com phenomenal website great day-to-day commentary from great authors like chris hedges um, and uh, i write there pretty regularly and every two weeks you can find my uh, american history for truth diggers series stay tuned civil war era is coming up sounds great sounds great so uh, for some upcoming episodes, just so you guys are aware, um, we're going to be recording a, a sort of online panel about moral injury, um, and that's going to include myself, Danny, um, the War Axe, if you guys are familiar with him, he, uh, he's out prowling around on Twitter, uh, Tyson Manker, 
who uh, we interviewed earlier this year about his uh, bad, uh, bad paper discharge. And um, Pastor J uh, Josh Morris, who's somebody who reached out to me after uh, he read the moral injury article that I had on anywar.com. And um, anyways, we wanted to bring together some, some different points of view on moral injury, some different experiences, and kind of uh, uh, collaborate a little bit and, and see what we can come up with. We also have coming up, we're going to be doing a, uh, a dual podcast with uh, Room of Requirement, which, um, let's see, Age and Wisdom in the Age of Trump, or uh, Truth and Wisdom in the Age of Trump, I think is their, is their hash line. So, but really nice group of guys, and we're going to sit and talk with them about some, some military topics. And uh, lastly, on the 6th of September, we will be airing uh, our breakdown of uh, September 11, 2001. It's going to be uh, some history, some analysis, some personal stories, but uh, we haven't really discussed that in full detail. So look for that coming up uh, just before the anniversary of September 11th. And uh, just a reminder for everybody, this is um, a couple of things are coming up. Obviously, September 11th is coming up. This will be the uh, 17th 17th anniversary yes i believe, I believe. So. Yeah, yeah 17th anniversary and uh november 11th we'll probably talk more about veterans day like we always do uh this november 11th uh is the 100th anniversary of armistice day the uh which is what veterans day used to be called it was the end of world war one it's supposed to be the war to end all wars we know how that turned out there's been just as many wars since world war one as there generally were before so um I know Veterans for Peace is really focusing a lot um, of their efforts this year on the uh, Armistice Day, 100th year anniversary, but uh, something else to keep in mind. You know, we start talking about September 11th is coming up. we got to talk about how do we analyze the September 11th attacks 17 years in the rear view, and then we're going to come to Veterans Day and do sort of the same thing. So uh, I think it's really interesting, especially since Trump was planning a parade for Veterans Day, although it looks like that's been delayed indefinitely. But, uh, yeah, really some interesting stuff and some interesting anniversaries coming up. So uh, thanks for joining us today, guys, and uh, we're really glad to be back after our break. Man, I wanted to get some podcasting done, and uh, please come visit us again. Uh, check out some of those upcoming things. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. we got a lot more coming. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.